BetMGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at BetMGM. Simply download the BetMGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then, place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. I'm former FBI Assistant Director Frank Figluzzi. Join me on a journey deep inside the world's premier law enforcement agency to decode the mysteries and challenges of today's FBI. The threats facing America are as real as the men and women who battle to protect us. In this first-of-a-kind podcast, we sit down with active-duty FBI personnel who reveal their mission, their cases, and their lives. Let's go inside the Bureau with Frank Figluzzi. Parkland, El Paso, Vegas. Listening right now, someone may have some deep concerns about a coworker, a neighbor, even a family member. These offenders, as they plan, prepare, and consider for their attack, don't do that in a vacuum. What makes violent people tick? A sense of growing desperation or hopelessness. And you feel certain that something bad would have happened but for that intervention. If they've never done an attack before, they're going to have to learn how to do it. get inside the heads of those who do this. What's driving this particular person down that pathway? Our guest today is John Wyman, Chief of the FBI's Behavioral Assessment Center. He'll take us behind the scenes into the research and the lessons learned from studying some of the most tragic acts of mass violence in America, from school shootings and lone offenders to international and domestic terrorists. The FBI's threat assessment experts work to assess the violence that's already happened so they can stop the violence that may lie ahead. John, thanks for joining us. Thank you, Frank. Thanks for having me. John, I want to start by asking a little bit about your background, where you've come from, and your journey into the FBI. And I know from our prior discussions that you're part of a family legacy of law enforcement. Tell us about your background and how you came to be in the Behavioral Assessment Center. Sure thing. I guess my journey to become an FBI agent in my career here in the FBI started when I was really young. My dad was an agent. And um, I grew up with him as uh, kind of moved, moved across the country um, from place to place and, and really kind of, I think, set the seed for my desire to go in uh, to the Bureau later. I studied finance in, in college. And after about four, four and a half years in investment banking, that bug had never left. And, and I was applying for the Bureau at the same time I was, uh, I was applying for grad school. 
And fortunately for me, um, the Bureau came through at first, and this uh, the best career uh, anyone could ask for. Came in at about 98. Nin- 1998. And, and where were you assigned uh, since then? I was assigned to the Washington field office, um, mainly as a result of the embassy bombings that occurred in Africa uh, at the same time I was at the academy. So I originally had orders to one office, and they asked for volunteers to go to the Washington field office who was going to have a heavy lift on some of the extraterritorial terrorism cases. And I volunteered to go uh, to WFO instead. So I, I started at Washington field. I uh, was assigned to a terrorism squad there. Uh, actually, it was uh, the squad at Washington Field that dealt pretty much with all of the overseas uh, Sunni-based um, terrorism threats, so including al-Qaeda, um, and uh, worked there for a number of years before going over to headquarters and um, working in the counterterrorism division there, bounced back to WFO and then down to Richmond where I led some uh, or led, led our JTTF, Joint Terrorism Task Force squads, both at Washington Field and at Richmond. So just from, from a timing standpoint, ended up working terrorism. I didn't have any uh, experience in studying, studying the topic before coming into the, to the FBI, but just because of the time, the way it all worked out, and starting off in that unique position at, at Washington Field, that, that really became my um, career's focus until I came to uh, the Behavioral Threat Assessment Center a little over four years ago. And... Um, Moved up here from Richmond and uh, assumed the uh, role of the chief of the Behavioral Behavioral Threat Assessment Center, where we work on a holistic view of the threats that we face, uh, from counterterrorism to other acts of, say, targeted violence or personally aggrieved offenders. That sounds like a logical segue from investigating violent terrorists to now heading up an effort that investigates what makes violent people tick. Tell us more about the mission of your unit, its unique mission with relation to the other behavioral analysis units, and what your men and women of your unit attempt to do every day. Sure. So we are one of four operational units at the behavioral analysis units, all, all anchoring back to that, to the to the foundation or the bedrock of research and specialized training to support uh, our operational experience. So all of the things that I brought to the table when I came, as well as the people that work in my unit, they come with a really vast uh, and and deep amount of experience working, investigating these types of cases and situations. And But then when they come in, um, we, we layer on top of that this additional specialized training and we conduct our own research within the BAUs out of an additional research-focused unit. And so we put all that together in order to try and help uh, those seeking our assistance. So in in my case, at the Behavioral Threat Assessment Center, that would be our FBI field offices or our state and local partners who are dealing with some of their more challenging, um, complex, concerning cases, and they want some of our additional support. That would be similar to the other units. We're we're a resource um, for uh, our, our state and local partners across the U.S. So it sounds like a large part of what the unit does is research and analysis of past violent events with an eye toward learning enough to get inside the heads of those who do this and and help identify warning signs, indicators, and whether or not someone's on a path to violence. Do you deal across the board, across the spectrum with 
acts of violence? Is it is it just terrorism? Does it go beyond that? And what are the parameters of what you'll look at in your unit and what is, perhaps um, is not within the scope of, of your unit? Yeah, good question. So we are, we are unique in that as well, is that we, we look broader outside of just the, say, the counterterrorism or the, the, the threat of terrorism, which would be based um, on the goal of using violence to bring about social or political change. Our unit assists on cases beyond just that, where it may be, say, you mentioned before, right, like your, your school shooter or your personally aggrieved, um, say, a workplace uh, violence offender or just your, just your threat in the community of someone who is, is um, planning, considering, contemplating a potential act of violence to resolve whatever underlying drivers and motivators that they have. We work it all out of one unit because really there's, there, in, there are similarities that span across in the way that these events can be prevented. And that's our focus. The, the focus of our unit is, um, is in prevention. We look back through research you know, at other cases so that we can learn from them, so we can, we can take those lessons learned and we can share them all in pursuit of this idea of prevention. And, you know, in addition to the research, it's, it's really important what we learn from our operational experience uh, in the unit. So, you know, every week we've got six, 10 new cases coming in that we're, we're having to uh, work through, problem solve, and, and we learn a ton from those. And we also deploy out to some of these bigger events and we'll support, um, we'll support the investigation on the ground, but then we'll also, in certain cases, take a deeper dive into the, that offender and, and, and what brought them down the path, all with this effort to bring it all together and to provide that best consultation service to those looking for our help. So where do these uh, cases come from? You, you mentioned you know, consultation looking for help. Is, this isn't just FBI field offices. Th- these are, this is support of state, local, county, even tribal law enforcement. Do I have that right? Yes, that's right. Right. Yeah. So the, the, the terrorism cases, obviously, those are going to be coming in from our joint terrorism task force um, investigators from across the country. Uh, and, and they're working in that joint terrorism task force environment with their state and local partners. But it's an FBI lead, you know, on the investigation. But similarly, persons of concern or, or potential threats will bubble up at the state and local level, and they may not fall into uh, the the parameters, the right and left, you know, limits of what the JTTF is, but they're still a threat. They're still a concern. Um, and really, if you think about those potential those potential school shooting school shooters and the school shootings that we've seen in the past, the same diligent, focused, uh, structured approach to trying to prevent acts of terrorism can be applied to preventing these school shootings as well. And that's what we. That's where we help out. So the locals will bring bring their case into us through one of our threat management coordinators, and um, we'll have a series of conversations with them. Go back and forth, look at the data, gather more data, and really just try and problem solve the situation together. You, you mentioned school shootings um, and across the board these other tragedies of mass violence. What, what are some of the the high profile uh, without getting into the the details of the findings on each of these specific? instances, what are some of the high profile uh, events that our listeners might uh, might quickly identify with that either you personally or your unit have deployed to? 
Sure. So, so many of the big events that have occurred over the last several years, uh, we will have, um, we've had one role or another in. That could be, that could be, you know, just in, um, in, in, pri- in remotely providing that support to to the field. But, but for some of the more significant ones, say, you know, if you look at Parkland, El Paso, Vegas, the, the shooting that occurred in Dayton. Um, and, and most recently, even down in Nashville, Tennessee, the, the um, explosion there, we'll deploy out uh, people to embed with that investigative team to work with the local field office and their partners in order to try and bring to bear some of our experience in order to, and, and also to try and pull in additional information again so that we can, we can learn from these and get better as we move forward. Yeah, I think everybody listening wants wants you to succeed. They want you to learn enough lessons to uh, apply across law enforcement to, to to help get out in front. Let's talk about some of those commonalities. You you mentioned that there are certain things that apply across the board, perhaps to those who uh, reach the flashpoint of violence, and and you also produce a publication. This is not secret information. You get the word out on what you find. Talk about. Uh, how you get the word out, and most importantly, talk about what you're finding in terms of the warning signs, indicators, commonalities of those who commit this kind of violence. Sure. So getting the word out is 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 critical. It doesn't do us good if we just keep this information back here and we don't share uh, with um, our our law enforcement partners, our non-law enforcement partners, say um, mental health professionals, probation and parole, uh, the judiciary, uh, you name it, right? All these other stakeholders that are involved in uh, prevention. Um, it's it's critical that we get this understanding that some of that these events can be prevented. And you look at what we call bystanders. Obviously, the sooner we can learn about a uh, person's potential journey down the pathway towards uh, intended violence, uh, the better. Uh, the quicker we can observe that, recognize it. And and ideally report it, the better. And and some of the one the the bystanders that are going to be in the you know most critical place for seeing those early warning signs are your family, uh, your your close friends and your peers. Obviously, there's a role for for authority figures like bosses and um, maybe religious leaders in there as well, and even strangers, right? So think of the see something, say something. But we want to get further um, left of that of that event in order to identify, recognize, and report. Um, and so, so some of the ways that we do that, uh, just uh, recently uh, we put out our Lone Offender Terrorism Report, which was a research study that we did here in the BAUs, uh, which looked at 52 ideologically motivated offenders. And we studied the offenders, their, their attacks, and the, and the bystanders. And then we also, pr- a year prior to that, we had another report that we put out on the pre-attack behaviors of active shooters. So so looking separate from the ideologically motivated or the, the terrorism cases, taking that same look in order to try and find out what are those behaviors that, that we want the bystanders looking for? What are the key the key warning signs or, or the triggers and stressors that we should be on the lookout for so we can get those reported and actioned um, appropriately? 
breaking news out of Georgia tonight, and I have to warn you, it is disturbing news, and this is a developing story. Seven people have been shot and killed in Georgia tonight in the Atlanta metro area. At least two more people have been injured in what appear to be connected attacks. NBC's Atlanta affiliate has just confirmed that police do have a suspect in custody now in connection with these shootings. That confirmation coming just in the past few minutes. Police say the shootings occurred at three different locations, again, all in the Atlanta metro area. All three locations are massage parlors. John, listening right now, someone may have some deep concerns about a coworker, a neighbor, even a family member. What has been learned about the warning signs and indicators? What can you share with the public about identifying whether or not someone is moving toward violence? Uh, what are some of the commonalities you see? Yeah, that's a great question, Frank. So I'll say that, you know, our research across the board, so I've talked about lone offender, active shooter, and, and really the other, any of the other research that we do shows that these offenders, as they uh, plan, prepare, and consider for their attack, don't do that in a vacuum. And even, even if they end up alone at the end, that doesn't mean they started off alone. There are bystanders around who who see this concerning behavior and for a whole host of reasons may decide or they take different actions. So some may just rationalize the behavior away, you know, try and think positively and, and say, oh, it's just just John being John having a bad day, right? Um, or some don't know where to report it and they might not have confidence in what they're seeing uh, being a concern. And so we see that lots of bystanders who see and even recognize that is concerning behavior, they don't they don't go and report it to an entity that can actually do something with it. So so law enforcement being one of those best best avenues of reporting, but there are other avenues as well. And the key is sharing that information, but but getting the bystanders over that natural inhibition, um, maybe to say, uh, this is serious enough to go tell someone about. And what we've seen is even though, in, you know, the, the offenders start off from a different place, um, they, they travel down this same pathway where they've, they've got to do things um, to say research and plan and prepare uh, for their ultimate attack. And some of the things that they're going to be doing along that that way are going to be observable by these different bystanders, and and um, some of the some of the key things, as I mentioned before, like the family, those people that are closer to them are going to be able to recognize these contextual changes in behavior. Anything we see or observe in a vacuum, like that one particular data point, is is very difficult, very difficult to figure out how concerning it is. Other than, and that's what you're getting at with say some of the see something, say something campaign. Someone lays down a backpack in a crowded. Um, crowded subway station. That's that's something you could recognize just by seeing that that one behavior. But what we want to do is we want to broaden out that aperture, and we want people to be able to see, hey, um, there's something going on with this person I'm concerned about. So these changes in behavior. Someone who who used to be able to handle um, setbacks uh, or or grievances, um, problems in their life well in the past now just isn't being it, it isn't being able to do so right so so there are people that are voicing um, indications that violence is the solution to whatever the problem is 
It could be a, you know, social or political, but it could be a personal problem that they're having. Uh, and, and giving out indications to these bystanders uh, or those around them who, who can see this idea that, that the person of concern is, is really considering, contemplating, or viewing violence as, as that necessary and justified solution. You know, having, having a bad day, nothing wrong with that. And we're, we're not talking about that here um, as to what we want people to report, but we want them to, to look at what are they saying about violence and what are they saying about uh, the idea or the thought that there's this impending crisis uh, or last resort coming. Like, I'm going to be left with no other options but violence. Um, a, a sense of growing desperation or hopelessness. Those, those types of indications can be observed in many different ways. could be verbal, right, just through conversations, things that they're saying. But there are other ways that we see from the research and from our experience where this, um, these types of indicators leak out. And we call it, we, we, the term is called leakage, uh, the term of art. It's information that maybe was, could be written down in a school journal, uh, would show up in, a, um, in an art assignment from school, but then also lots of times we see it online. Um, it'll, it'll appear in posts on, made on social media or in message boards that have some sort of a more of a nuanced type uh, indication that, that something bad is happening, that there's violence on the way. And oftentimes it's this, these forms of leakage that become really clear when you look at them you look at them in hindsight. Hindsight's twenty twenty, and the challenge is to recognize that leakage, that concerning behavior, um, those non-specific or non-direct threats, uh, in their context with the other changes in behavior that are that are mentioned. And that's having one person get all of those data points is is difficult, and that's why we need it to be reported, so that other people can gather in the additional information to put around the observed behaviors and get a true sense of the of a threat and the management strategy. Let's take a short break, then get back to exploring the path to violence. This podcast is sponsored by BetterHelp. Is there something interfering with your happiness or something that's preventing you from achieving your goals? As you know, uh, this is AG, by the way, you know I've had issues with anxiety and post-traumatic stress. I know how important it is to know you're not alone and that you don't have to face these issues alone. BetterHelp will assess your needs and match you with your own licensed professional therapist, and you can start communicating in under 48 hours. BetterHelp is not a crisis line. It's not self-help. It is licensed professional therapy done securely online. You can log into your account anytime from anywhere and send a message to your counselor, and you get timely and thoughtful responses. Plus, you can schedule weekly video and phone sessions, so you never have to sit in an uncomfortable waiting room, as with traditional therapy. And BetterHelp is committed to facilitating great therapeutic matches, so they make it easy and free to change your counselor if you want to. Best of all, there's a broad range of experts available to anyone from anywhere because the service is available to clients worldwide. It's more affordable than traditional offline counseling, and they do have financial aid available. BetterHelp wants you to start living a happier life today. So visit BetterHelp.com Bureau. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. And you can join the over 1 million people who have taken charge of their mental health with the help of an experienced professional. In fact, so many people have been using BetterHelp that they're recruiting additional counselors in all 50 states. We have a special offer for listeners of the Bureau. You get 10% off your first month at BetterHelp.com Bureau. And we're back with more of our discussion with John Wyman. A couple other things that... that people should be on the lookout for, right? As someone moves along that pathway in that research and planning preparation stage, 
Uh, they're going to be trying to enhance their capabilities. If if they've never done an attack before, they're going to have to learn how to do it. So are they going to have they never been interested in acquiring and and shooting guns? And now this is this is a passion of theirs. Are they are they trying to learn about chemical combinations and, and ways to make explosives that that have no connection to really the rest of the world? And concealment. Are they trying to hide their activities? So if someone is planning and preparing to conduct an attack, they're not going to want other people to know about it. So are there certain areas in their life that they're now blocking off? Are they, are they having conversations with people in a way that they're concealing that they have never done before? And some of the warning signs that we see at the end that, that really are important is, is that end-of-life type planning. Are there, are there things that they're doing and saying that it would indicate that they think they're not going to be around anymore? And, and are they creating uh, in the present day things that would help them be remembered in the way they want to be remembered? We call them legacy tokens. So are they preparing things to leave behind uh, that other people would then recognize later after an attack as like, oh, that's why, that's why this guy did it, right? So if we, can, if we can observe these things early, the earlier the better, and we can report it to someone who can actually do something about it instead of just keeping it in, inside, then that's where our, our, our prevention efforts are really enhanced and we can manage and mitigate these threats. John, I think you may have just helped some people really uh, wrestle with the, the difficult question of whether or not to seek professional help or law enforcement assistance for um, someone who is troubling them even right now. And you, you ran through a, a litany of great insights to include all, all under this heading of what you call leakage leakage of insights. And I, I wrote some things down, a sense of hopelessness. Uh, maybe someone's using that kind of language of despair that they've reached the very end, nothing left to do. Violence has become the solution, the answer. They're talking about that. There's signs of planning some kind of event, violence. Maybe they're, maybe they're even purchasing a weapon or talking about how we, how they would do it. And then there's a you mentioned an element of secrecy and now becoming kind of clandestine and hiding or compartmenting off certain things. Um, all all really good stuff. And and I think you were really careful and it's important to, to note that any one of these data points in themselves wouldn't necessarily be significant. But when you start multiplying them and then when you throw in stressors of life um, that might just be really coming down on people, what, what are some of the common stressors, not only all these, these indicators that something's happening, but, but are the person being surrounded with certain stresses of life on top of this, do you see certain commonalities going on in people's lives that, that just magnify the stress? Yeah, yes. So that's a terrific question because Everyone, as they are researching our experience, is showing that the decision to move along this pathway and to, and to ultimately act is, is going to be highly personalized and individual to that offender. And those, those life stressors and, and really some of the triggers that we look for when we're assessing these threats are, are really important. So you've got the concerning behaviors that you, that you look for and you bring in and you try and gather as much data as possible, but then you're going to look at, all right, what's, what's weighing on uh, this potential offender? And, and our research shows that when we look back at, at some of the studies in our active shooter report, the offenders in the year preceding their attack had three and a half uh, or so 
different uh, significant stressors going on in their life. So it's, it's this breeding ground for the, the ideas and the belief that violence is necessary and justified, that that foundation is set on on this bedrock of stress, the stressors or or these risk factors um, that are going on in somebody's life and and things that are weighing on them in a way that they get to the point where they've got this growing desperation or hopelessness. There's nothing else I can do. And so some of the key key stressors that we found through our research, and it consists across both, you know, all, all that we've looked at is one is just mental wellness. Right? And I'm not saying I'm not saying mental illness or or diagnose mental illness. I'm just talking about mental wellness or a lack thereof. Are there are there things going on in their life that are that are causing them to feel uh, depressed and anxious? Um, are they are they having some kind of paranoia or, or delusional beliefs? Are there things that are making them more fragile in their thinking and the way that they handle stress or cope with stress? How's their resiliency? Just just that just that mental outlook as to how they're dealing with problems in their life. And then some of the other stresses then logically, when you think about these, are gonna be their interpersonal relationships, their their interaction with peers, students, coworkers. Are they having problems at school, be it with grades or discipline or at work? You know, where, where do people spend their time around who do they spend their time? And that's where you're going to see, uh, at least from our research, where some of those significant stressors are coming from. And the offenders that we look at who are, who are resorting to violence for their solution often don't have the ability to form these kind of pro-social relationships or pro-social life outlook that would, that would keep them off the pathway to violence. Think about financial stress or, I mean, heck now, right? So with the, with the pandemic, the global pandemic, those are additional stressors that are weighing on people. Those would be some of the, the, the biggest ones that we see are the most, you know, these health stressors or mental health as well, um, that we would see weighing on people as they move along and they just decide that they can't handle it. Yeah, makes sense. And uh, you're right. Uh, we're living in an environment of stress right now, perhaps unprecedented in most people's lifetimes. So things are exacerbated. How does this all play out practically in the field? So let's say that a field office or a police department out there wants uh, an expert set of eyes on a, a case they're working, an individual they're concerned about. Um, how does how does it work? Uh, how does a police department get hooked up with your folks? So in the last couple of years, we've really tried to um, streamline this process and and push push forward some of the capabilities that we have back here at the Behavioral Threat Assessment Center out to the field. Um, the big effort really started after the um, the shooting in Las Vegas in 2017, and then then Parkland in 2018. And, and out of our unit, we've brought back from across the country, I've brought back um, coordinators who we call, we've now designated as threat management coordinators in each of our field offices. And we've provided them with an additional three weeks of training back here in Quantico, and then deployed, redeployed them back to the field to go out and to establish these relationships in the community with, with law enforcement and and some of those other key stakeholders that I mentioned before, including mental health, social services, probation, parole, your prosecutors, right? So these, these agents have now come back. They've been trained up and pushed back to the field 
as threat management coordinators. And their job is to go out there and establish these relationships and be um, be that point of contact in their area of responsibility so that a when a when your local sheriff's office or police department has has a problem, personal concern, they know where to go. They've already talked to this person, they already know the capabilities and they can go and they can bring that to them and they can start problem solving uh, out there in the field. And if necessary, they can escalate it back to get our support here. You know, we're a limited limited asset, even though we are a national asset, we have a we have a limited capability back here to support all the threats. There are a great number of threats across the country. And so what we wanna try and do, the vision is to really try and build the capabilities to use threat assessment and threat management teams across the country in order to be able to use the same sort of structured process we do to assess and manage the, the threats. Always having the ability to escalate or move it back to you know get our support if needed, in some way to build these teams across the country, and we're leaning on those threat management coordinators and our key state and local partners that are that are involved in this in this lane of responsibility. And do you view the counterterrorism agents out there, the FBI agents who investigate terrorism every day? What's your interaction like with them? They are that kind of front line. They're sitting across an interview desk, perhaps, every day with someone who might act out. Do you offer them your insights and training? Certainly do. Absolutely. So some of those threat management coordinators that I mentioned will also be agents sitting on our Joint Terrorism Task Force. They don't have to be. Uh, it's their rep from the office, but but we are, we've seen a number of the agents that come back to serve as that office's threat management coordinator are, are sitting on the JTTF. And where they're not, there's a, there's a real um, solid link up between our TMC, threat management coordinator, and the agents on the JTTF because we're, we're helping, we can help us support some of their cases as well. Before they go into that interview, before they make some of these other decisions, we can, we can use the same, types of threat assessment and threat management techniques to help them with their investigation. You know, it's real important that we try and as effective or as accurately as possible to assess that threat. What, going back to everything we've just talked about, what's driving this particular person down that pathway? Because if we could figure that out, then we can come up with some really good management decisions. And one of your best management decisions for someone who's a really high concern, who's moving towards a potential attack, is using that criminal judicial process, right? Our tried and true arrest, prosecute, uh, and convict. But oftentimes, the cases that we see, um, the ones, especially the ones that come back to us, are the more challenging ones where where maybe the the evidence just isn't there yet, but but we're really concerned that this person's moving forward. Or for some of the younger people, like juveniles, or or maybe when there is mental mental illness at play, are there other non traditional or non you know non non traditional types of management strategies that could be used, leveraging some of our our other partners? So we definitely across the country, you know, those cases that are getting worked off the J- Joint Terrorism Task Force, while we don't manage them, our Counterterrorism Division manages them, we we help out in a consulting role on those cases on a, on a day-to-day basis. You know, I always ask about success stories and in your line of work, it uh, can be difficult to 
measure success in the sense that you never quite know um, what hasn't happened because you intervened. But um, is it fair to say that there have been cases where some form of law enforcement intervention occurred um, because of your work, your involvement, and you feel certain that something bad would have happened but for that intervention? Absolutely. You're right. It's it's hard to measure success because it's something didn't happen. So is it because of what we did or is it because of other factors? It's easy, easy to easier, I'd say, I guess, to measure failure. And, and we certainly um, don't ever want that to that to happen. But we know with certainty, you know, based on the cases that are coming through and what we see on a on a weekly basis. We've got some really high concern cases that we're helping support, um, and it's a team effort. It's not; it's our team back here, but the rubber meets the road out there um, in that community at that JTTF, the local police department, and those other stakeholders that we kind of bring together and we build on an ad hoc basis to to manage this per- person of concern. That's where the real hard work comes, and there's a lot of. There are a lot of dedicated professionals working across the U.S. on this every week, and 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 acts are absolutely being prevented because of the uh, of the efforts of this this combined team. Yeah, that could be satisfying, very satisfying work. Tell us about those dedicated professionals that are in your unit. Who who's in this unit? What's the background? I'm sure there are uh, young people listening who are saying this this is fascinating to me. What's the pathway to doing this kind of work someday. Who are your colleagues? So we're we're a multidisciplinary team. So we've we've got experienced investigators uh, from the FBI and from partner agencies. So ATF, HSI, the Marshal Service, Capitol Police, um, NCIS, you name it, right? So we've got we've got uh, experienced investigators, people that have grown up through the ranks of their their own agency, and then in our case, the FBI, experienced FBI special agents who spent years and years um, working and investigating these cases. And that's that's really important. Before they come in here and we layer on all the additional training and research, we got to know that that these, these folks have been out there, they've been there, and they've done it. They've put together cases. They've sat across the table uh, during these interviews. They've written search warrants, right? And and we bring them in and then we give them this additional training, but we support them through a team of similarly experienced uh, intelligence analysts and crime analysts, and then also some administrative support personnel. And then what's really what's really unique here is we have um, contractors who support the BAUs across, across all the BAUs, mainly from, you know, the mental health professions, right? So operational psychologists, forensic psychiatrists, and and um, other partner agencies, but then also uh, medical doctors on, on staff. So we can we can go to them, um, and when we put together our team to analyze and assess the problem, we know we've got the right people looking at it. No one's guessing, and and if we don't have the right people on our team or on contract, we're going to go find them. If there's this unique religion or cult or something that's driving or motivating somebody. We've got connections in all these different organizations where we can pull someone in if needed in order to accurately assess um, assess that threat. So people don't come right into the unit um, right 
as they first get into the FBI. I often find myself talking to uh, younger people that, that say, hey, I really want to go work for the FBI behavioral analysis unit. What do I do to get there? And I say, well, first you, you, need, to, you need to get the experience through the FBI or through other uh, activities that are going to make it make those skills relevant to the team back here. Uh, and, and you've got to, you got to br- bring that experience with you and then we can build, build the rest of it. So don't just join the FBI to go into the BAUs, um, go into it to become a analyst, um, uh, some other sort of, um, investigative support type person or an FBI agent, a general FBI agent. And if your goal still remains to someday work for the BAU, that's, that's a possibility certainly is. Uh, but but it's not something you just go into right off the bat. Yeah, it makes sense that you want folks to have the kind of street cred necessary to not only get it right, but also to have credibility with uh, the local state detectives, many of whom are really seasoned homicide and other investigators. Right. I mean, when you're talking to them about an interview strategy on on this really concerning case uh, or or how to go you know, get a search warrant for a particular thing, you've, you've got to know what you're talking about. And, and these experienced investigators out in the field, they'd see through someone that's just, just going based off of what they read in a book, right? You've got to, that's why, we, that's why we lean on that experience before we bring people in. That makes sense. Let me ask you about a hot topic today throughout our country and even the world, and that's the topic of domestic terrorism. Is there a common theme toward radicalization to violence, regardless of whether it's a domestic terrorist you're looking at or an international terrorist? Do you find common motivations, drivers, stressors, and the kind of common leakage that you've talked about? Tell us tell us about any commonality there. Right. I mean, the ideology is important. Trying to find out what's motivating, what's the belief system that your person of concern has. You know, when we're assessing that threat, it's going to make us smarter on how to manage it. But we want to, we don't want to ask bystanders or other people out there to really have to try and become experts on what those ideologies are. And it doesn't take a knowledge of the ideology or what the belief system is to recognize those concerning behaviors we talked about or those life stressors or the leakage. That's going to cross the board and that movement down the pathway is going to be the same uh, for your domestic motivated uh, violent extremist as as just as much as your international motivated violent extremist or your your personally aggrieved as we talked about before that a lot of the same behaviors um, that move someone down that pathway are going to be the same and the, and the ideology mixes with all those personal life stressors as well it creates this complex cocktail of risk factors stressors beliefs that that are causing someone to believe that that violence is necessary and justified. And that's where you just go back to that violence piece. Um, it's okay to have extreme nonviolent type beliefs and and many people do, right? Uh, it's it's where it's where those beliefs move to the idea that violence is necessary and justified to solve the injustices or the problems that are affiliated with that belief system. Yeah, it's all about uh, it's all about the path to violence as opposed to studying what someone thinks just for the sake of studying 
their ideology. Right. Sadly, John, it seems like uh, as the threat has grown closer and closer to home, you and your colleagues will increasingly have examples and case studies uh, to study. And we want you to succeed. We want you to prevent the next act of mass violence in our society. Thanks for joining us today, John, and go back to the unit and thank all the men and women of uh, the Behavioral Threat Assessment Center for what they do to protect us every day. Thanks for listening to Mass Attacks, The Path to Violence. Join us for our next episode, The Bomb Collectors, where we'll learn how the FBI's analysis of bombs can lead them straight to the bomb maker. The Bureau is written by Frank Fagluzzi and executive produced by Allison Gill with sound design and editing by Molly Hockey. This show is engineered by Matt Brousseau with podcast art design by Johanna Coxeter. Music for The Bureau is written and composed by Peter Rydberg. The Bureau is a proud member of MSW Media Network, a collection of independent creator-owned podcasts focused on news, politics, and justice. For more information, visit mswmedia.com.